What can the early Christians teach us about marriage, and how can holy matrimony transform a culture? Join us today as we talk about marriage in the early church with Mike Aquilina, who is the author of more than 40 books on church history, doctrine, and devotion, and including the newly revised Fathers of the Church. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Today we'll be talking about marriage in the early church. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University. And I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, who is the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. And our special guest today is uh, probably no stranger to EWTN. Uh, Mike Aquilina is the author of over 40 books. Um, you are the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and you've hosted a number of programs uh, series here on EWTN. I have so, indeed. Yeah, so welcome to the show. It's, it, great. it's great to be here. It's great to be on campus. I love this place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really excited about our topic today. Mm -hmm. I think this is uh, a great opportunity for us to dive into the past to see uh, somewhat where we are today. We're talking about marriage and the early church. Um, so first, if you could just help us, you know, kind of paint a picture for us, if you will. What, what was marriage like in the Greco-Roman times? Well, it was a contract. It was an inherited institution, uh, something that was revered, passed down from the ancestors. It was a way of preserving the traditions and, uh, and the family fortune. Mm. Uh, and, and it was uh, a civic duty. Mm. It was a way of holding the society together. It was revered for all these things. The uh, moral philosophers and the political f philosophers paid it a lot of lip service. Okay. In practice, it was not so pretty. Uh, and already, uh, by the, uh, the middle of the first century BC, you have, um, you have government officials worrying about where it was going <laughs> as an institution. Divorce was very common. Adultery was considered normal. Uh, homosexuality. Uh, uh, was considered a normal practice for a married man, yeah. and, uh, and even pedophilia. All of these, these vices, these things that we recognize today as vices, uh, were, were becoming very common, uh, and, and the, uh, the family itself um, was losing the will to reproduce itself. Yeah. Hmm. There was not a lot of hope for the next generation. So, so marriage was under attack by all accounts, and even by pagan or secular sources saying, we've got trouble here. Uh, what, what kind of things did they would have done back then to even address some of those things? Well, uh, you know, in, in, in Caesar Augustus, we have a very interesting figure yes. who recognized that, that we had reached a crisis situation here, and he started pulling alarms. Hmm. He saw a demographic winter looming. He okay. saw that this represented a threat to homeland security down the road. <laughs> yeah. So he, sa he saw that something had to be done. And he instituted a, a whole series of laws penalizing uh, adultery and actually uh, instituting penalties for childlessness. Wow. Because families were contracepting, you know, couples were contracepting. He didn't like that. He wanted them to have children. So he rewarded those who had more children. Uh, he, he penalized them uh, with taxation if they didn't have children. 
and yet people could not muster the, the will to, to reproduce. You wow. know, they did not have the hope to pass on. They had reached this level of world peace. They had reached a level of prosperity that mm -hmm. was unheard of in history. Right. And yet they didn't feel like they could pass it along or, or they should pass it along or needed to pass it along. I mean, what, and, and I remember reading just in some of the things you've written and, and, and other history books, I mean, they, they did really awful things with children and the value of children uh, as part of their marriage and that contract. They did see it as a contract and as property, really. I mean, that, that's really astounding. What, what were some of the things that they did uh, you know, with their children? Uh, well, well, if you were, just start with the worst situation. If you were a girl, uh, you, 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 did, you didn't have a good lot in life. Mm -hmm. uh, girls were commonly called odious daughters. The hated daughter, imagine that. Wow. That's what they were commonly called because they were a drain on the family economy. They were never gonna get a job. They were never going to support you in your old age. You had to depend on your sons for that. And then you had to pay a dowry to marry them off and get them off your dole. Yeah. So they were considered- And her children weren't yours any longer. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Of course, it's an economic liability. They belonged to the other patriarch, the other, the other family. Yeah. So, uh, so, so girls were looked, looked down upon. And, and really, uh, if, a, if a family uh, had a daughter, the daughters were often done away with at birth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in um, you know, uh, the typical way, the Roman way of birth was this. Uh, if, if you were of the, uh, the, the kind of family that could afford the, the care of a midwife, the midwife would come to your house and you were delivered of a child and the child was placed on the floor placed on the floor and the father was called into the room. Now the father would walk over to the child and if the father raised up the child, oh. he was taking possession of the child and acknowledging paternity. If the father turned on his heel and walked away, however, the child was to be, was to be done away with and, wow, uh, and they would either- So infanticide. Infanticide uh, of one form or another. Now sometimes they were drowned in a bucket of water right there in front of the mother. Or sometimes they were taken out to the dung heaps at the edge of town because you know Romulus and Remus were rescued from just such a situation. So if the God wills that this child sh too should be rescued, the child will be rescued. Unfortunately, in the, the first century BC, the first century AD, if the child was rescued, it was most likely by a pimp to be brought up into child prostitution. Yeah, yeah. What a lot to have yeah, in life. A, a, uh, am I uh, being a little bit naive uh, in detecting certain uncanny resemblances <laughs> to the modern age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're being naive. I, I think that, um, that pre-Christian paganism looks a lot like post-Christian right. paganism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our world has too many similarities. I mean, we're institutionalizing many of the same aberrations mm -hmm. that were so prevalent in that pagan world. You know, it's interesting that in our friends, you know, Patrick Riley has that book, Civilizing Sex, yes. and he looks at the Augustan reforms, Caesar Augustus, and, you know, Augustus Caesar didn't even live up to his own reforms. Oh, sure, know, he was an adulterer. Private life, right. right. But, I mean, it, it, it was portrayed as a moral crisis, and they would appeal to classical philosophers and ethicists, but the fact is it was just out of pure political expediency. I mean, in some ways like Russia today, you know, with That's Putin, right. you know, just doing things because as you say, you know, you can see where this is going. And the fact is, this is really where Judaism had a contribution to make that is often overlooked by historians because that's, you know, religion, that's the precursor to Christianity. But it's exactly what sets the stage for Christianity to take that morality of the Decalogue, of the covenant, and to bring it into non-Israelite settings 
But I mean, no wonder it took so long and so many right. martyrs. Well, well, the resistance apparently was pretty fierce uh, yeah. on the part of uh, the Roman world. Uh, you quote Tacitus in, in that really quite wonderful essay uh, you wrote on St. John Chrysostom. Uh, Tacitus uh, dismisses uh, the Jews as sort of repulsive and right. sinister because they oppose, of all things, infanticide. Infanticide, yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, get with <clears throat> it. They're not very chic. Yeah. There, there was universal approval of it. You know, we find approval in Plato and Aristotle right. and all yeah. these, these, these folks we consider to be noble minds. Right. And they just right. did not see a problem with this. It was the, the way you, you, uh, you controlled a population. It's the way you, uh, you, you, uh, you controlled morbidity in a population. Right. Yeah. So we have, we have this context of, of life not being sacred. We have children seen as property and women really seen as property. We have marriage really as just a, a, a form and a contract and often Oftentimes, just an empty shell, mm -hmm. and it's in that context that Christian marriage begins. How, can, contrast a little bit uh, what Christian marriage would mean in that Greco-Roman times. Well, you know, it's um, it's not easy to prove anything like this because right. because unfortunately. Uh, Ordinary married couples do not become the subject of treatises in the early church right. because they weren't at the center of the controversies. You know, the uh, the, the the problem of persecution, for example, or uh, or the uh, the letters that are concerned with. Uh, Trinitarian doctrine or church discipline, uh, so we don't we don't know a lot. But I suspect that the family was really at the heart of the old evangelization. Mm -hmm. That the Christian family life was so attractive because of this very simple idea: husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right. Yeah. You know, you pointed out, Michael, that uh, that uh, that girls and women were property, mm. and they were treated that way, and they were treated. Because they, they, you know, you know, they were, they were whatever dignity they had, um, they had because they could produce a son for the family. And after they had produced that son, usually one, uh, then they were, they were kind of relegated to to a position of of uh, irrelevance, right, in the family, or or just removed from the family if the if the husband wanted wanted to move on in life. Mm. Uh, so so uh, imagine. Suddenly, the, the witness of these families where women were treated with dignity, that where they were given vocational freedom, mm. vocational freedom. A woman uh, could actually refuse to enter a marriage in the Christian world, which was not possible in the Roman world. Uh, and a woman could actually choose not to marry and enter a life of perpetual virginity. Wow. which was unheard of in that time, was seen as revolutionary, as radical, and as a threat to the social order. A threat to the social order. Right. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, this would be sub subversive <laughs> activity here. Well, think about this world. There's a shortage of women already. You, ha you have uh, uh, the, the ratio of men to women was outsized. So there weren't enough women to go around. And here are these Christian women, and they're choosing to live a life of virginity, right. not reproducing. So they're, they're neglecting their civic duty hmm. and they're making themselves unavailable to wow. pagan men. Right. Wow. Wow. Uh, in, in, in some sense, uh, we're putting the cart before the horse because uh, prior to Christian marriage or some provision made for Christian virginity, you have the event of Christ. Right, oh, right, yes. right, of course. He, you know, this eruption yes. of, of the word into flesh, into human history. I mean, Irenaeus says, by, by bringing God into the world, 
all things are made new by his sudden appearance. Everything changes. Once the incarnation happened, nothing can remain the same again. And in due course, these changes are fleshed out and people realize, good heavens, this is the way the world really looks from the perspective of of Christ. And And it's it's interesting too, because when you compare the Jewish moral code of the Decalogue and the Covenant to the pre-Christian Roman imperial paganism, I mean, it's a stark contrast. But even in the Old Testament, divorce and remarriage, polygamy, concubinage, these things were accommodated in Deuteronomy, for example. Yeah. And so the coming of Christ is death and resurrection, but also the resurrection of marriage. I mean, the elevation of matrimony to a sacrament so that suddenly monogamy is no longer some ideal. It is the norm. And you get the grace from God, the risen Christ, to live this out, or at least they say so, you know. And, and, and the sacrament doesn't make it easy, it simply makes it possible. And so it's going to take centuries, really, for this to be assimilated, for this to filter down. But I think that's exactly what, you know, we see, you know, as Rodney Stark points out in the rise of Christianity, it wasn't through mass stadium crusades, it really was through family influence uh, yes. that you have this massive but subtle expansion of Christianity around 40% per decade, you know, and some historians are reluctant or resistant to acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. but, you know, empirical, statistical, sociological research bears us out, bears his conclusions out, you know, and so it it is a quiet revolution that takes place, you know, over time. Already by the year 200, you have the apologist Minutius Felix, who's addressing pagans, who could easily confirm whether he's right or wrong in the claims he makes, and he's boasting that Christians have one wife or none. Right. So there, there is the, uh, the option of celibacy, right. but those who are not celibate are monogamous for life. Right. And you have to believe that this was enormously tra- attractive, yeah. first for women right. Right. Young, right. In, yeah. in young girls. Right. And you see, I think that's a beautiful thing to look at today. You know, when they, when they talk about all these political games that are being played or, or the aspersions they cast on the Catholic Church, really it was the church who, who represented, uh, by Christ's command, the dignity of the woman um, and the beauty uh, that she brings and, and raised her to a whole new level that was unseen before in, in history. Right. I mean, the impact of the event of Christ was immense and far-reaching. And, and we're oftentimes, I think, hesitant to point that out to the critics of yes. Of, uh, of any sort of Catholic culture uh, these days. The transformation of the value and the place of woman because of Christ w- w- was just uh, of, of incomparable uh, importance. Yeah. You know, they, they were trash, they were, they were just property, but suddenly they become an icon of the Blessed Mother, the Church herself, Ecclesia and, and, Immaculata. R- really, and, and, and suddenly you have women occupying positions of influence, yeah. they're yeah. teachers in the Church. You have someone like Perpetua, yeah. Uh, who keeps a journal and it becomes an international bestseller in the <laughs> early 200s yeah. and, and she's revered even you can see in her journal while she's in prison the males in the party look up to her yeah. for leadership yeah. in yeah. sanctity yeah. and then her, her journal becomes an international bestseller as I said and she is revered around the world suddenly she is the, the, uh, the subject of Christian art in faraway Italy yeah. and this happens happens in a time 
uh, we, we have hardly any evidence of, uh, of pagan women writers from this period. Yeah. And that's powerful. I can't help but think this also has a sort of trickle-up effect. You know, if it's attractive to women, it's also going to end up gradually becoming attractive to men who, as husbands, become fathers of daughters. And as these men come to faith and begin to cherish their daughters, they're going to want what's best and realize, you know, the imperial ethical standards are substandard compared to what is really emerging now as the proper norm. And not only is it supernatural revelation, but it's also the recovery of that which alone fulfills us naturally as humans, too, yes, you know. Yes. Rodney Stark, you mentioned him earlier. The sociologist Rodney Stark points yeah. out that, that the, the presence of so many women at Mass on Sunday would make, would make Christianity very attractive to pagan men. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's right. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Unlike the Greco-Roman culture, in, today in Christian marriage, there's a total gift of self between the spouses. The husband and wife love each other fully and completely, and everything that they do is for the good of the other. And so their whole goal is to love one another and to lead one another closer to Christ and to God, to lead one another to heaven. Well, I've noticed that society's changed the definition of marriage. Um, I think everyone's noticed that. Um, and what we need, because it's causing a lot of confusion, we need to have the Christian understanding of marriage. And it's mainly to create a family. And the family is like a small church. And when we get that small church into society, it can just set a huge example and just change, just change the world. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about marriage in the early church uh, with our special guest, author, uh, Mike Aquilina. Uh, Mike, we were talking, we ended on a very great note with uh, the beauty uh, of women and the attractiveness that the church must have been uh, because of that. Uh, explain for me a little bit, uh, the, the kind of the sexual morality uh, that was going on in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Well, we, we began the last segment by talking about the, uh, the uh, you know, first of all, the lip service that was paid to certain values, and then, and then, and then how they played out in, in, in the general public. And, and uh, if you look at uh, the moral philosophers of, of the classical period, you find that there's, uh, they, they have a great esteem for f f chastity uh, uh, among women. You know, women were expected to be chaste. Mm. Uh, they, they wanted them to go into, into marriage as virgins. Um, they did want them to marry, and they did want them to reproduce, and they wanted them especially to produce sons. Um, uh, th there was a double standard, though. Men were not expected to live that way. And mm. uh, if you look at the, the upper classes, uh, most of them owned slaves. And one of the purposes of a slave was for sexual use whether they were male or female, they were used by the male members of the family. And often the, uh, the, the males in the household were brought up um, seeing their fathers abuse slaves, both male and female, and they themselves kind of grew into that pattern of life. Mm. So you have them entering sexual maturity 
thinking that this is the way you have a sexual relationship. Right. Yeah. That's uh, normal. Thing. Yes, it's, it's, right. it's essentially rape. Yeah. It's, it's an imposition, it's a, it's a demand, and it does not lead to children. If, if it does produce children, the children are done away with in one way or another. Um, contraception was also practiced very widely and, wow. um, and, and, and was considered the norm. Wow, wow. So you have that as the Greco-Roman uh, culture. Yes. Uh, and their sexual mores, which is obviously, yeah. it's unsettling, uh, but it's a double standard that we often sometimes even see in our modern history. It was, it was widespread, it was widespread. Uh, a few years back, Norman Cantor, uh, a well, very well-known historian, uh, wrote a, a history of antiquity. So he's, he's trying to summarize a history covering thousands of years, really, and many different cultures. And he makes some general statements that he feels he can safely make. And here's how he sums up the sexual climate uh, mm. in the Greco-Roman world, the, t the period we're talking about. He says that um, the empire was very far from imposing sexual repression. <laughs> Divorce was easy. Prostitution flourished without controls. Homosexuality was commonplace. Even bestiality was practiced and received little censure. And in spite of this sexual freedom, until the end of the second century, the empire was as yet little harmed by venereal disease. The Roman Empire was a sexual paradise, he says, wow. without a trace of irony. Wow. Um, I mean, it's our definition of hell. It's, it's, <laughs> it's people using other people for the, the satisfaction of instinct, impulse, pleasure. And, uh, and it's institutionalized. Now, when you think about it, in, in uh, Roman Italy, between 30 and 40 percent of the population was enslaved. And all of these slaves were in a, a position where they were sexually vulnerable. And this creates a certain climate, it creates a certain culture, and how could this not have an effect on sexual relations within marriage? Now, lest we think, since we outlawed slavery, we don't have that danger. I think what we have to recognize is that slavery wasn't simply the cause of that widespread immorality and abuse. In so many ways, slavery was the result mm -hmm. of immorality. When the family broke down, so many individuals weren't raised in the safe haven of you know, uh, a family. And so they were just sort of you know, subject to predators. And, and so the enslavement of individuals in so many respects is the result of you know, generations of immorality. And I think we're backing into that right now as well, you know, with the breakdown of family yeah. and marriage. We're and galloping uh, in, into that uh, situation. Right. I mean, somebody used the phrase polymorphous uh, perversity, mm -hmm. which is what we practice, and, and we seem to have imitated pretty well the practices of, of the world before Christ came to deliver us from that kind of bondage, that pathology. The, the analysis of, of, of yourself and, and, and the historian, the Professor Cantor, uh, seems to me profoundly acute in terms of diagnosing what was wrong with that world and why we should want to embrace the worst aspects of it. Uh, uh, 2,000 years after we were emancipated uh, uh, is, is, is a puzzle. It is no accident that we find ourselves sliding as a society back into practices like human trafficking, yeah. right. you know, right. or, or the, uh, the new rise of, um, 
of, uh, of pedophilia. Yeah. Uh, this was considered normal in, in the Greco-Roman world. And we have to, it's hard for us to imagine this, but the emperors practiced it almost, yeah. Yeah. almost universally. Right. Right. Domitian was, was seen as a moderate because he kept only one boy slave for yeah. this purpose. Right. He was seen as a moderate, right. yes. whereas Nero was an, right. an extremist who had boys surgically altered to fit his preferences. Right. You know, when, when this yeah. program is rerun in a few years, I shudder to think that people will hear it and say, yeah, so what? Mm. You know, yeah. because, I mean, again, even though we're moving, we're galloping in this way, you know. Uh, when the arguments against gay marriage were first deployed, you know, they were saying, well, you know, this is going to lead to polyamorous, polygamous, you know, mm -hmm. and oh, come on, and, and, and within months of the acceptance and the Supreme Court decision and all of that, sure enough, oh, yes, I mean, right. major news magazines are running stories to show how ordinary and beneficial that sort of aberration can be. It's not aberration at all. And a respected major news magazine runs a, 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 a man's personal defense of his use of, of child pornography. Right, right. so if we have gay marriage, why must it be strictly monogamous? That's the logic, and it's right. like, why didn't we see this coming? Yeah. Right. So we have we have the, the the history to look at for where we are today and where we might go because the Rome the Roman Empire didn't work out so well right. when these 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 foundational uh, pillars of their society were being removed. Yeah. The, the understanding of the dignity of a person, marriage, uh, the, 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 all of those kind of fundamental. Uh, well, one one, one of thinks of, of Chesterton's famous quip: "We don't know what we're doing." because we don't know what we're undoing. Yes. A, a, a whole uh, a structure of mores uh, we have systematically dismantled. Yes. Yeah. And, and we call it progress. Yes. Yeah. Chesterton also said, you don't, you don't tear down a wall till you know why it was put up. Yeah. And we're right. tearing down right. walls right. at an alarming rate right. all over the society. Yeah. So if, well, I was gonna say, I think Christians have, in, in, in a way, contributed inadvertently to this by assuming that the common good can be achieved by natural means, natural effort, natural reason, natural law, and that Christianity and the supernatural grace that we receive from Christ with the sacraments, that's dessert. You know, that's served after the main course to really enjoy life eternally, when in fact the whole course needs to be thrown out. The main course is rotted, and, 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 and it's like Christ has got to be the one who serves us up, you know, the, the, the the banquet of the lamb. I mean, right. this is the way the social order itself was righted back then and it will be again today. The old evangelization was indispensable back then as much as the new evangelization is today. You yeah. both bring up the event of Christ, which is so important. And, and I think it's sublimely symbolic that it's Augustus who makes the most noble, concerted effort at enacting the, the natural means to remedy this situation, and he fails right. utterly, right. utterly, and the historians are all agreed on that. The ancient historians, those who were living in the generations immediately after, after him, said that he failed utterly right. at his project. Yeah, right. The merely human is always inhuman. Right. It's mm -hmm. never yes. enough. And what, what strikes me is that it, it wasn't so much the doctrines uh, that impressed the pagan world, but rather the example of Christians who had uh, somehow dramatized those drama, dramatized those dogmas in their own life. That's right. I mean, the witness of the martyrs, uh, the sanctity that was somehow seen on the countenance yes. of these young women 
women and men who were bound for, for destruction. It, it moved this pagan yes. world because they had somehow rediscovered themselves yes. uh, in the person of Christ. The I was somehow re-found right. uh, in the countenance of Christ and it gave them new life. Yeah, and as, as we look at, at, at the context in which Christ entered the world, in this, this, this decadent, this, this immoral, this, this, this dehumanizing culture, it's much like we look at today and say Christ still enters today. And he entered back then, yep. and he enters today just the same way, but he did it through beautiful human means. Yes. He, families, Christian marriage, that was the, the stark contrast to the life, yep. the, the empty shell that was falling apart that was the Roman Empire. Yep. I think we become what we worship. Mm. And when you, when you look at the gods and goddesses the Romans worshipped and the mysteries that, uh, that, that they celebrated of these, these gods, the manifestations of their life on earth, they were, they were, uh, they were perverse. You know, the gods themselves were adulterers. Yes. The gods themselves committed infanticide. Mm. All of these horrible things were were uh, were placed on uh, the highest. Yeah, idolized highest and worshipped. <laughs> yes, uh, and 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 Christians worshipped a Trinitarian God, an eternal communion, eternal love, and eternal happiness. It mm. did not have an end, and it was. And it had this endless fecundity, yeah. this beautiful openness to life uh, that, uh, that, was, that was open-ended. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, and I have to believe that that shone out from Christian homes. Yep. It converted the next-door neighbors and then all the way down the block. See, that, that's so crucial. Yes. That, that Not only is the church an extension of this divine family communion, but ordinary families become, part, you know, they participate in this, but not in, not in isolation from each other. You know, the church is a family of families, and so through spiritual friendship, through neighborliness, yes. through practicing the virtues, this moves from the the ethical to the practical and the ordinary. Yes. You know, and I don't want to glamorize it because you know by the time we get to the fifth century and. Augustine is writing the city of God. I mean, Christianity in so many ways sustains the Roman Empire, but it doesn't make it the kingdom of God on earth, no, you true. know. And, and he's very careful and balanced, I think, in pointing out that there, there's still decay, you know. But paganism left to itself would have ended the empire centuries sooner. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it, was it Pope Benedict that said the, the, uh, the means and the end? of the new evangelization is the family. Was that, is that correct? That was. And, and I mean, if you just think about it, just take that back to the old evangelization, as you said. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're, the God's plan probably was. Yeah, I think what he said was, it's the subject and the object. And the object. Okay. That Christ's love for the church is itself a marriage. Yeah. And so marriages have got to also become the object of that good news, you know, so well put. If you look at St. Paul's letters where he, he um, he, he discusses in most detail the mystery of God, Ephesians and Colossians. It's also the place where he gives the most nitty-gritty right. practical advice to families. Right. And it's always very specific and, and, and geared toward the, the individual person, the husband, the wife, right. the children, how to act toward your parents, how to act toward your spouse. And, and that, that pattern follows. You see it in uh, Ignatius of Antioch after him. You see it in Polycarp of Smyrna mm. immediately after St. Paul. And this is a pattern in Christian life. We move easily from talking about our Trinitarian God, this communion of persons, to talking about this loving communion mm. on earth. Mm. And you know, we can't make these things up because we're saying it publicly, we're yeah. putting it in a letter, and people can confirm it or deny it based on what they see around right. them. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't discourse about Christianity at the level of abstraction. It reaches into the concrete world. It has an immediacy uh, that I, I think 
provides comfort and hope. You know, the, the mystery that Paul speaks of in Ephesians and Colossians that leads to marriage and family life also leads to, in those two epistles, to his treatment on spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. Because he recognizes that if you're going to try to live this in the world, right. it isn't going to be easy it's a or popular. It's a battle. Yeah. Christian marriage uh, back then and today, it's still a battle. Yeah. Uh, you're watching Franciscan University Presents. You won't want to miss the next segment when we talk about the early church and marriage. Thank you. The biggest problem with marriage is selfishness, which is using the other person. The two main things that every healthy marriage needs to have is love, which is wanting what's best for the other person, or willing the good of the other person, which is the opposite of use or selfishness, and having the same goal or objective with the other person, which is God. Growing up, I've realized that I was surrounded by several children that grew up in broken homes and have now found that I have been living within a family with a strong foundation and a great example of what Christian marriage is. And I want to thank my family and my parents especially for giving me that foundation because that will help me down the road within my marriage. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Um, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University and our mission. Uh, the program is taped right here in our communication arts studios. Um, the, uh, the cameras and the equipment are operated by our students. Um, the panelists, as well as myself, are all uh, faculty or administrators here at the university. Uh, we've been talking about um, uh, early the early church and marriage. Mike Aquilin has got a great book. He's got many books, 40 books, too, too many to, to cite, but, but The Roots of the Faith from the Church Fathers to You has got some great sections that we've been really discussing and diving into. Um, we've been talking about marriage in the Greco-Roman world, and there are almost too many, uh, scarily too many contrasts with today. Um, let's go a little further. You know, if the, if the Roman world, they didn't want to have children, what, what is their marriage about? What do they do? Well, uh, if you were very wealthy, it was about pleasure. And actually, if you were middle class or even into, into poor, it was about pleasure. Mm. It, was about, um, it was about bread and circuses if you were poor, <laughs> okay? And, and that's how they kept the people distracted and amused. Uh, it, 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 the, the modern equivalent would be, you know, the people who are, are constantly doing this on, their, on their, their iPhone, you know, constantly texting, constantly surfing, constantly distracted. Yeah. So that they don't yeah. have to think about the, the, the existential horror of their lives uh, and, and the emptiness of it. Um, if, if you were wealthy, well, then you could, you could take part in any number of delights. 
if you were a married couple and you had a decent friendship, you could always look forward to the next vacation. Mm. And uh, the children are always an encumbrance on a vacation. You know, I, I'm sure my panelists can <laughs> can can can, uh, can tell stories about the the time that the child had a meltdown and, and, and you know the the what was supposed to be the high point of the vacation. Not our kids. No, <laughs> no tantrums. <laughs> never. <laughs> so you have these things that happen. Uh, at, at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, you have the, the most refined Romans. You know, you have Tacitus, you have, you have um, Pliny the Younger talking about the excellence of childlessness and the blessings of childlessness. This was seen as kind of an ideal. You know, you contracept, you commit infanticide, you commit in abortion so that you have nothing uh, inhibiting uh, the pursuit of what you want to do. Yeah. 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 And, and no sense of irony at all uh, in, in yeah. making these statements, these pronouncements. I mean, you're, you're looking at a world that is about to self-destruct. Yes. Right. Well, I think it's I a recipe that, for extinction. Yeah. And I saw, I think, in Time Magazine not too long ago, it was the childless America. Yes. And, you know, yeah. I mean, they're extolling this. They're seeing right. the benefits. But, of, I mean, that's what secularism does. It, 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 it takes you away from the future and makes you a creature exclusively of the right. present. I mean, right. John Maynard Keynes' famous quip, in the long run, we're all dead. Oh. You know? right. But uh, you were saying something during the break about surrogacy. Instead of children, oh. what was it? Because instinct does not go away. Right. You need to mother something. Something. You Nurturing, need to father yeah. something, and uh, and and so so we have so many instances of these these pagan couples lavishing attention on their pets, right. building yeah. tombs for their right. pets. What was the, What was the quote? That, oh, uh, Clement, Clement of Alexandria. He said that the same women who place their children on the dung heap will then adopt hatchlings of birds and coo sweet nothings to them. You know, they built, again, built tombs for them, fed them better than the poor were being fed. Wait, treating pets like children? Can you imagine <laughs> such a thing? That would never, ever, no. pet, pet, That would never come back yeah, to our pet culture. Pet insurance and cemetery. <laughs> no, and you hear have. this all the time, that, that today we hear dogs are the new children. Right. They are emerging to satisfy this instinct, especially yeah. for motherhood, but fatherhood too. Yeah. This instinct to, to, to love yep. something. We're, we're, we really are witnessing an entire civilization sort of collectively uh, slitting its throat. Mm. Uh, and, and the bloodbath is going to go on for a long time, and it's come back. I mean, that same death wish is in the saddle nowadays. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to see this. Mm -hmm. I mean, Freud made the distinction early on between the life force, eros, which is creative and it builds community, and the death force, the death instinct, thanatos. And we are, we are moving towards death. Yes. I mean, secularism really is an implicit invitation uh, to suicide. Uh, and, and, and again, suicide was something that was, that was often seen as a virtuous right. act. Yeah, the noble Roman. Yes. This is a stoic virtue. Yes. You know, in talking to colleagues who do history professionally, they point out that the privileging of the Roman Empire is something that we've all become so accustomed to, but that there are dozens of other civilizations that are not nearly as well studied, but also were in steep decline and self-destruction. But I'm also thinking of Byzantium. I mean, when you think of the new Rome, when, when Rome shifted from Rome to Constantinople, mm -hmm. uh, Byzantium, you know, over the course of centuries, that same sort of decadence came back. 
as it were. And they became post-Christian in so many respects. I remember when I first began studying St. Thomas as a new Catholic decades ago, you know, the sins that we would call sins against purity, he treated under the category of lust, but he looked at it in terms of luxuria, Mm. the Latin term from which we get lust, when, when cultures privileged luxury, you know, the, the, the indulgence of hmm. the self, you know, then suddenly, you know, if you're pre-Christian, you walk right into it. If you're post-Christian, you're backing into it. Hmm. But regardless, you know, that sort of self-enslaving capitulation to lust and luxury, prosperity, the, you know, the, 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 the wanting of wealth here and now and nothing more. And if children take it away from us, we'll have pets instead. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? As, a, as a dog lover, I just want to say pets are good to love, <laughs> but not above and before right. children. I, I have <laughs> two dogs. I have two dogs. And one thing they've done is bring the family together, That's right. you know, That's in right. this project of raising the dogs. Yeah. Right. So now as we look forward, what, what kind of impact did the, the Christian family have on the culture uh, back in the early church? Well, I think that one thing you see is uh, is is uh, uh, not a complete disappearance, mm-hmm. unfortunately, of infanticide and abortion, because there's always the temptation to avoid shame, right. uh, avoid any kind of social stigma by by taking what seems to be a quick way out. So it doesn't go away, but it does diminish to the point of almost going away. Right, right. So these things do become less and less common. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to use a, another modern analog, um, uh, there are Mormons who drink, yeah. you know, and there, there is alcohol in Utah, but there's a lot less alcohol consumption among Mormons, and there's a lot less public drunkenness in, in Utah for this reason. So this became um, a, a much more controlled mm-hmm. problem, and, it, and, and the, that act, abortion, infanticide, uh, bore the social stigma. Yeah. The, sa- the same thing happened to divorce. Um, divorce began to bear the social stigma. And, uh, and families were more likely to stay together, to work things out, or to ride out whatever personal crisis I seem to be having at the moment where I want to indulge this whim or, or that whim. You know, I'll, I'll ride out this crisis and I'll make it work. Yeah. Yeah. So it began changing society. You know, you, you, could, you could argue uh, along these lines that while Christ, when he came, really did preside over the formal liquidation of the pagan gods. I mean, they, they took flight. The great god Pan is dead. Mm-hmm. They're gone. They can't come back. So to be a pagan in a post-Christian world is very different from the sort of innocence of pre-Christian paganism. But the temptation of paganism, idolatry, that always remains. That's a recurrent ordeal of, uh, among men. Uh, to, to the, you know, the temptation to glorify and apotheosize things that are mere creatures, to turn them into gods. Yes. I mean, that's always present in the human heart, and it has to be resisted. Mm. And, and, you know, Augustine seizes upon this uh, in the City of God when he distinguishes between the love of self and, and the love of material things, cupiditas, which is oftentimes a contempt for God and for others, he contrasts that with caritas, mm-hmm. the love of God, which oftentimes becomes a contempt for self. Yes. And that distinction is a sundering one. And you have to go right or left. You can't, you can't sort of fudge the difference. You have to choose. Christianity chose in a decisive way caritas and has struggled with it ever since. But it baptized an entire world. That's right. right. And That's I right. think it exercised that, that, that attractive power 
that attractive power. You asked what difference it made. I think that long before Christianity became legal, it began to exercise an influence over laws. Okay. So already with the Severans, for the first time in history, we find anti-abortion legislation. Wow. Yeah. And many historians believe that this is the effect of Christian influence yeah. on society. Yeah. Um, the, the Romans are saying, we want, to have, we want to have people reproduce. We're facing this demographic winter where we see the threat to homeland security. What do we do? Right. Well, the Christians are reproducing. This answer. is an important point because it counteracts the tendency that most people still have to think, well, Christianity spread only because Constantine legalized it. <laughs> when in fact, what Stark and others show is that Constantine legalized it because as a matter of fact, it the empire had become Christian. Yes. De facto, yeah. vast yeah. majorities in yeah. most of the major cities. Yeah, we, we can't know what his inner motivations are, right. but, you you know, he could tell which way the political winds were blowing, and, yeah. and at that point it was counterproductive. You had Christians in every sector of society. Uh, it's quite likely that by the time he was out of diapers, Christians were, were already making up a, a majority of the population, or the largest plurality by far, in most of the urban centers. Now another researcher, Thomas Robinson, is saying that the rural areas were already Christian as well. Yeah, wow, that's yeah. powerful. But I mean, this residue of paganism does survive, even the triumph of, of, of Christianity. Yes. You see this, for example, in Augustine's own family, his mother, the saintly Monica, but his father, I mean, he's sort of a reprobate, he's a pagan, until, until maybe the last minutes of his life, when he yeah. has a kind of grudging, Conversion, so that he can ensure his safe arrival uh, in heaven. But that tears the family apart. I mean, it's sort of schizophrenic. This can be reproduced in countless Christian families. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but, but it's a great example that you bring up because there you have Augustine's father, Patrick, being, um, being um, transformed by charity, the yep. charity of his wife yes. that in the bore family. all example. things in right. the family context. And Augustine himself. Yeah. You know, being transformed by the charity of his mother, by the, the, by the prayers of his mother, by the perseverance of his yeah. mother. Yeah. And this happens over the course of years, yeah. years of her marriage, yeah. years of her mothering. Yeah. The force of example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she could so it's easily have thrown all of these <laughs> screeds at him and said, look, you read this and shape up. But instead, this quiet, persisting, love. tenacious witness of love. It, it really is. I, I'm glad you brought up that example because it, it is a, a transitional yeah. uh, right. example yeah. where we see this dynamic at work and we see Augustine growing up watching a father like that, yeah. trading dirty jokes with him yes. in the baths. Yeah. That's right. And, and, then, yeah. uh, and then growing into the same pattern of behavior yeah. as his yeah. father. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the change is not overnight. It's not as dramatic as, as you might uh, imagine. It's not the same Damascus conversion that Paul had undergone. This takes years, plus the wilderness time he spends with the Manichaeans. Yes. It, it's sort of like the human condition. It's a struggle. Yes. You know, if the bookies and the odds makers had tried to calculate what are the chances of converting this empire, yeah. I mean, just unlikely in the extreme, and yet against all odds, yeah. the old evangelization succeeded precisely because ordinary Christians living family life persevered in the struggle for virtue. I think you're right, Scott. When you think about the depravity of the situation and how widespread this was and how low people had sunk and how it was considered normal, right. normal, and it was all over the entertainment, too. You read the, the, the works of the satirists. They're, they're filthy. Right. And the descriptions by Tertullian of what went on in the theaters, mm. yeah. it, it's, it's, it's filthy. It's, it's pornographic. Right. And yet, and yet, yeah. there was that attractive power of right. the Christian right. family that was able to draw 
an entire society in just a little bit at a time. Right. But right. when you when you start to add up the numbers, it was as you said, forty percent right. per decade growth yeah. over over two hundred fifty right. years. I know. And, and, and the odds really were pretty slim. I mean, who would gamble on this Christian enterprise in the first century? I mean, look at the College of Cardinals. What have you got? One guy is a crook. Another guy is is a liar, a coward, and he becomes the first pope. I mean, th- th- this is this is the gang that's going to take over the world. Yeah. 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 You know, and to think, if man. God could do it back then, there's no reason to suppose that He can't right. do it again right. and wants to, yeah. perhaps even more than we do. I also think that we tend to foreground persecution much more. And of course, we can understand why it's coming our way like it came their way. But I get the sense from what you've been saying that for the early Christians, it wasn't just persecution that they were expecting. It was the gradual transformation of a culture into a civilization of love. From a pre-Christian culture of death and the dictatorship of Caesar's own relativism <laughs> to something that historians reluctantly label Christendom centuries later. And, and, and when the Stoics talked about Christi- Christian behavior with admiration, right. they always talked about these twin virtues of fortitude, as exemplified by the martyrs, and chastity, yeah. And, yeah. and as exemplified by Christian families, Christian right. couples. So you see these twin virtues, they go together. And right. as Elaine Pagos points out, that the Gnostic sectarian movements had a lot in common with Christians, except for they didn't consecrate virgins and they didn't die in martyr, you know, persecutions yeah. and martyrs. Good point. And this is, yeah. this is the beauty of looking back at the early church and seeing its application uh, for us today. You won't want to miss the last segment as we do some highlights and summation. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Growing up, I wondered how true marriage was possible in this world. And it wasn't until I met beautiful families at my parish that I was able to see that there was hope for marriage. And through meeting them, I began to realize that this total gift of self is possible through the church and through relying on the love of the Holy Spirit instead of their own love. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere, just completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors had the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we've been talking about marriage in the early church. This is our, our fourth and final segment. Uh, Regis, could you uh, start us off with a little, uh, some of the highlights? Yeah, well, the first highlight, I think, is uh, uh, admiration, uh, Michael, for what you've done. I was struck by the number of books you've written, 40. I mean, that eclipses anything I've done, and maybe Scott even has <laughs> yeah. surpassed that number, although he's working towards mm-hmm. that goal. But I'm awed by your industry uh, and, and even more impressed by, uh, by your trenchant uh, defense of, of things Christians, things Christian, and, and, and the sort of sanity uh, that you bring to the discussion of what this world needs and what the world uh, has lost but can still somehow recover. And one thing I'd like to recover is, is a good word for Constantine, the first mm-hmm. Christian emperor. I know he gets a, a bad rap and maybe his motives were somewhat mixed dubious at best, but he made 
Christianity available uh, for uh, the poor, not, not, not people who are materially uh, deprived, but people who are mediocre, uh, who need all kinds of props mm. to sort of uh, make the, the constitution of virtue uh, easier, more, more accessible, more attractive. And one thing he did, it might have been the first edict uh, he sent down uh, after uh, becoming a uh, Christian was to abolish the practice of the branding of slaves. Mm. And he did so on the grounds that if God himself had become a slave, then there is something hallowed, something really holy and sacred about even the flesh of a slave. Now, he didn't have the kidney to abolish the institution of slavery. I mean, that took thousands of years, but he humanized it in a way that I think uh, commends him to us. And it reminds me of a beautiful passage from Henri de Lubac, uh, his great work uh, on uh, the drama of atheist humanism. De Lubac says, it had to end in bankruptcy, mm. uh, this modern project of eliminating God from mm. the world. It was bound to end in bankruptcy because man is himself only because his face is illumined by a divine ray. And Constantine recognized that. That was the grace of his conversion, this acknowledgement that even property, human property, chattel, slavery, which he wasn't going to uh, uh, abolish, nevertheless, involves people who bear the image of God, imago Dei, and it ought to be respected. And at the very least, what we can do is not brand their skin, mm. because God wore human skin, and that renders it somehow precious, imperishable. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Regis. Yeah. Scott? You know, I also want to express my gratitude to you, Mike, again, for all the work that you did, but especially in this study of marriage and family life in the early church and the, the model that we gained from it. It reminds me of what Jesus said. The Great Commission back then in Matthew 28 was make disciples of all nations. Well, that's still the Great Commission today. You know, we need to Christianize individuals and we have to do it person to person. But we cannot shrink away from the, the, the task, the challenge of Christianizing culture. Because if we let the, the non-Christians, the anti-Christians, de-Christianize culture, you know, we're basically in a life raft full of people who are puncturing you know, the thing. And so we've got to stop them. But we've got to do more than stop them. We've got to really Christianize culture. Even if it's small Catholic subcultures that are made up of families and community, I mentioned earlier the fact that besides Rome, there, you know, there's St. Patrick converting the Celtic culture. Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm thinking of my son-in-law who studied Bishop Wollstone and how he drew up penitential liturgies for the Vikings so that they too were <laughs> gradually Christianized. And in India, you know, where you never had the majority of people converting to Christianity like in Rome, studies have been done to show that the Thomas Christians there had thriving Catholic Christian subcultures. And I think the more we you know, advance, not just study and individual evangelization, but family life, and in challenging married couples to really tap the divine reservoir of the sacrament, and to never stop struggling to get back up again. We're always going to be weak until we draw our last breath. But the encouragement that we gain by looking at the early church, in the Roman Empire especially, Christianizing it, forming Christendom, but throughout the world as well, where, you know, 
making disciples of all nations. The Greek word for nation is ethne, where we get ethnic groups, you know, and this is to me the great encouragement. And Regis, I want to build on what you said too, because Constantine gets a bad rap. Peter Lightheart wrote a great book called Defending Constantine. It isn't flawless, but I think it's highly instructive because it reminds us of the task that we face, as gargantuan as it seems, to really strive to make disciples of our nation and other nations too, to Christianize culture, which the Catholic faith can do like nothing else. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Mike? Well, I think that even today, the family, the Christian family, can exercise that attractive power. I think that if we're going to succeed at this new evangelization that the popes have been calling us to, the only way we're going to do it is through the family. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the clergy has been weakened by scandals mm-hmm. and weakened just in numbers. And I think that God allows these things for a reason. Yeah. Allows them so that we'll come to the fore and we will we will evangelize by means of the family. In the early church, uh, it's, it's quite likely that our priests made up a small portion of the Catholic population. And not only that, they had bullseyes on their back. Hmm. They were likely to be the first rounded up in the persecution because they were the public members of the church. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the priests who were out there beating the bushes, converting the neighborhood. Most of the people in the neighborhood were never going to hear a sermon. Where were they going to encounter Christian faith? They were going to encounter Christian faith as guests in a Christian home. They were going to encounter Christian faith through these ambassadors for Christ that we call our children and our grandchildren because they go out there and they get into the neighborhood and they insinuate themselves into the lives of the neighbors and they make themselves indispensable. They make themselves these these, um, oases of happiness that the neighbors can appreciate. And there's so many ways that we should be transforming our neighborhoods right now. And there's simple ways, sharing meals, again, as I said. But uh, it's funny, uh, I, have, I have six children and now you know, they're, they're grown, but um, uh, often what they do, what kids do is they draw pictures for the neighbors and they draw pictures for their relatives and they draw pictures for your friends who live at a distance, who, who visit now and then. What's amazing is sometimes you'll visit these homes after 10 years, 12 years, and you'll see that 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 picture drawn so many years ago is still stuck to the refrigerator with a magnet. Right. This is an Mm. icon of divine love kind of radiating Mm. out into the kitchen of a home. It's a beautiful thing. There is so much love God is pouring into Christian families through the grace of the sacrament of matrimony. We've got to open the floodgates and let that love flow into our neighborhoods. That's what the early Christians did. That's how they evangelized the world and changed the culture, and we can do the same thing today. God's arm has not been shortened. (laughs) Amen. I'm all excited now. (laughs) If you like today's topic uh, on on marriage in the early church, you're going to love this download at uh, Faith and Reason, uh, St. John Chrysostom and the Mysteries of Marriage from Mike Aquilina. It's a a chapter out of the book and right uh, right for our times. Uh, I couldn't have said it better than Mike. Um, Our world is dying for you and your family to get out there. Uh, and God has given you the grace to do that. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission, uh, maybe by coming and taking a, a class or two here on our campus or through our online or distance program. Uh, maybe it's joining us at one of our summer conferences or joining us on a pilgrimage to some of the holy shrines. Uh, 
um, or by going to Faith and Reason. We have talks from some of these gentlemen here and so many others that can inform, instruct, and give you the equipment and the tools you need to be great ambassadors in this new evangelization. Um, we at Franciscan University want to support you and we invite you to be a part of that mission with us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.